So Jesus started this journey toward Jerusalem. So many things for us seem like a good idea when we get started. New semester at school, awesome, right? New classes, maybe a new teacher if you're a kid. What could go wrong? Maybe you're 26, you're just starting your first job uh, after college or graduate school, you're transitioning, awesome, new job, new opportunity, it's going to be the best, right? Or you're on a sports team, you're on a basketball team, you start a game, you're excited to play, you're a golfer, you start a round of golf, it's going to be on earth, right? What could possibly go wrong? Well, sometimes you're in third grade and you realize two months into the year, you're having a disaster of a year. Like it's hard to make friends. Your personality and your teacher's personality, for whatever reason, don't seem like a great fit. And you go home one day after school and you're like, Mom, I'm out. I'm out of the third grade. I want to quit. Right? Or you get your dream job and six months in you're like, I'm making more money, but I think this is going to kill my soul. I committed to this. (sighs) Or you start a basketball game, and by the end of the first quarter, you're down 20 points. Or you play golf, and by the fourth hole, you've made four triple bogeys. You're like, can we just go home now? It's easy to start. Most of us have quite a bit of enthusiasm when things get started, even if we make a commitment. But then things get tough, and we are tempted. That is the key word this morning. We are tempted to quit and give up. Usually we use the word tempted for like, oh, I kind of want to do the really wrong thing, kind of the really awful thing. Like for sure it can mean that. But in the deeper sense, we are routinely tempted in a big scheme of life way to give up on the path that we have committed to or what we maybe know is the right path for us. Jesus faced this very thing. He had a job. He had a mission was no ordinary job. His job was to be the Messiah, the Savior, the Rescuer. And as Jesus was just beginning his journey to fulfill all that, he got tempted to, tempted royally. The Gospel of Luke chapter 4 is about a profound moment of Jesus' temptation. Not just will he or won't he sin, but will he finish what he pledged to start? what he's supposed to be committed to. Here's what I know. Love does all in its power to avoid temptation. Love pushes through temptation, and love always expects that there's going to be more temptation just on the other side. Here's what the Bible says about Jesus. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan River, he had just been baptized, commissioned, and was led by the same Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Now Jesus ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. So newly baptized, newly commissioned, Jesus is about to begin his work, he is full of the Holy Spirit, Uh, I mean, one way to look at being full of the Holy Spirit is like, that is as good as a person is ever going to feel. Like, full up of the life of God, Jesus is feeling great, and that same Spirit thrusts him out into the wilderness, the Judean desert, which is a dry and rocky, not much food or water kind of place. 
Jesus voluntarily submits to this and to a long fast. Why would he do that? Just when he's full of the Spirit, just when he's getting started. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us. My theory on this, my hypothesis, is that as Jesus is going to start walking the path of the Messiah, even though he is the Son of God, he wants to do this utterly dependent on the strength of God and not in his own flesh, not in his own confidence, not in his own awesomeness, but totally dependent on God. So he deprives himself just as he's beginning so he can be that much more dependent on God and God alone. And it is in this intentionally weakened state that Satan comes along, not just to distract, but to tempt. One of the most rotten things about the powers of evil and darkness is not that they find us when things are great, but that the devil is a dark opportunist. Like evil waits till we have been knocked a few pegs down, till when we are starving, to when we are struggling, to when we are already maybe a little depressed or anxious. And it's then, and particularly then, that the power of temptation loves to wrap around us like a weighty cloak and see what it can get us to do. Is it a sin to be tempted? I mean, Jesus is being tempted here, right? So hopefully we can agree, like, just being tempted, like, that is part of your life. That is part of a human being, a human being. Jesus, being the Son of God, got worse temptations, not easier temptations, right? Like, Jesus isn't being tempted with, like, an Amazon shopping spree or, like, a you know, a 50% pay increase, he's being tempted with something much more profound. It is a sin, however, when we run headlong into temptation, right? If we know, like, things that we are addicted to, bad habits that we have, mistakes that we just, you know, kind of love making, and then we open the door so that we can make that same mistake again and again because our kids are here. I'm going to pick on kids a little bit today. But, like, say you're a seventh grader with a hard history test coming up, right? And part of your studying is to try to fit on one page, like, all the dates, all the names, all the facts, some of the key ideas. And then you just think, maybe I should make that page that I wrote, like, the home screen on my school iPad, then I can study it that much e more easily, right? Like every time I turn it on, there's like the hard history stuff that I have to know. And then you're like, maybe I should bring that iPad and just put it under my desk. And then maybe I'll just accidentally like turn it on several times, right? Like that's how we, with the best of intentions, fall into tempting ourselves or inviting mm, the very thing that we ought not to do. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. There's lots of times that 40 days pops up in the Bible, like it rained 40 days and 40 nights and the flood. Um, Elijah himself was in the wilderness for 40 days, like 500 years before this. And God has an amazing track record that just on the other side of the 40 days, God does something powerful and good and gracious. 
And you can bet that Jesus is banking on this. I don't think the Bible's point is that all these things literally happen for exactly 40 days and 40 nights. It's meant to be a period where you maybe feel some distance from God, where you're struggling, and knowing that just on the other side of this period, God is going to show up and do something. Here's what happened to Jesus. So the devil said to him, Oh, would you guys be the voice of the devil? That would really be helpful for me. All right. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Hmm. This is one of the devil's most common schemes. I call it the if this, then that scheme. If you are the son of God, is Jesus the son of God? Well, then I have a little suggestion for you. Why don't you satisfy your hunger by turning one of these wilderness rocks into some bread? It will just entail following my orders for a minute, but you would be satisfied and then, uh, you know, you can keep following my lead. I don't know. It sounds like a good idea. How about this? If you really love the Chicago Bears, you should hate the Green Bay Packers. That sounds logical, right? No one's agreeing with this? I only see people shaking their heads that, no, I don't love the Chicago Bears. Next step. If you love the Chicago Bears, um, you should say bad things on a regular basis about the Green Bay Packers and their fans. That's a little darker, right? But something that's very fun in the sporting world. Here it gets even a little worse. If you love the Chicago Bears, you should maybe even reserve some of those negative comments for your spouse that was born in Wisconsin and your friends that come from Wisconsin. Like, now we're getting into trouble, right? Just with the begin a little innocent sports, if you love the Chicago Bears, then don't like this other team. Like, it is a fast track into harming yourself, the life of others, and the life of the world when we fall for the devil's if-then statements. Whenever one of these presents itself to me, um, I try to follow Jesus' examples, and here are the two main strategies for saying no to the tempter. Number one, quote some scripture that makes it really seem like a bad idea. Do you think Jesus had a Bible with him there in the wilderness? There weren't Bibles, by the way, 2,000 years ago. I mean, there were scrolls. Do you think Jesus had a whole collection of scrolls and was like, I need to turn to Deuteronomy 8 and find the right verse? Like, no. Jesus was able to give scripture to the devil because it was already imprinted on his heart and mind. This is the number one reason why, like, hopefully listening to sermons is kind of good. Like, as a kid, memorizing scripture, as a grown-up, never stopping to memorize scripture because you give God permission to make you strong in a moment of weakness when you have it inside your brain and inside your heart and readily available. The other great way to resist the devil is to make fun of him. Like if the devil's like, you like the bears, be mean to the Packers. Be like, devil, the bear stinks so bad, it's not even worth it. 
Or, I don't even like football. I play golf. Like, just something seems so serious. And if you can throw scripture at it, or if you can make fun of the, if this, then that thing that the devil is trying on you, like, it can make temptation totally become powerless. The devil does not leave Jesus here, though. He's got two more things up his sleeve. Then the devil took Jesus to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. This is quite something. And the devil said to him, your cue, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus follows the Bible strategy once again. Jesus answered, it is written, Deuteronomy 6, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus is also kind of making fun of the devil at the same time because the devil is boasting here. Everything that you look at is mine to give. It's been turned over to me, so Jesus, just bend the knee, and I'll give you some of the keys. All of us will hear this temptation in some way, shape, or form. If you just compromise yourself a little bit, here's the money. If you just bend the rules a little bit from what you promised to do, like, here's just a little more pleasure... No one will know. It's fine. Here's the keys. I mean, on a global stage, I believe probably the Russian president heard something like this. You can have the Ukraine if you just ignore the treaties. You know, if you're willing to suffer sanctions for a little while and then just willing to sacrifice the lives of some civilians. I promise it won't get too out of control. Sometimes wars go bad, but it won't be too bad. And then your dream of a restored Russian empire will be that much nearer. Can you imagine someone hearing a temptation like that? Jesus knows that the devil is boasting about having all the power, but he does not have all the power. Like Jesus is the only begotten son of God who laid down his crown to come from heaven to earth, who literally has been in the throne room of heaven, and he knows where the power is at. And the devil is so stupid that he thinks he could convince a person with this experience that the devil has the power when his father is the maker and ruler and lord of the known universe and beyond? Come on. This is a temptation of power. And wherever, however much or however little power we have, like we will be tempted along these lines. Um, one of my favorite ways to resist this temptation, and you have this opportunity too, is when you go to bed at night and lay your head on the pillow, and when you're completely useless for five or six or seven or eight or God bless nine hours, right? Like every day, we lay down our power, and like somebody could sneak up on us, they could cut our hair, they could, I mean, do anything to us because we're absolutely passive lying there on the bed. 
And like, I spend one third of my life, like not as a proactive, uh, attempting to be a hardworking adult, but actually doing nothing. So if somebody tempts me with power, I'm like, I'm already spending one third of my life doing absolutely nothing. Anybody? Does this work for anybody else? <laughs> I used to resent sleep because it meant I couldn't be learning something or getting better at something or trying hard at something. Now that I'm getting to be older, I embrace sleep because it illustrates that God has all the power and I'm doing nothing. Third and final temptation. The devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. This is like spiritual ground zero, right, for the Bible. And here's, here's what the devil says, if you would. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in your hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. There's so much going on here. Um, if you came in today, uh, on the front page of the worship folder, there's four passages printed. The first one was from Deuteronomy, which you heard a couple times. The second one is from Psalm 91, and that is the passage that the devil himself quotes here. So the devil being, you know, really conniving, like knows that Jesus keeps quoting scripture at him. So his attempt this time is to quote Psalm 91 at Jesus. Okay, so here, Jesus, you're at the highest point in the temple. You have this whole difficult road ahead of you of pain and suffering. How about you could jump off the temple, angels will rescue you, and it will be the best PR move in the history of religions. Everyone in Jerusalem will either see it or hear about it and know about it. They will think you're a god because, well, you're kind of god. And the angels like caught you and you can save yourself all the pain and suffering and everybody will acknowledge that you're God. I feel kind of guilty letting the devil introduce one of our lectionary readings, by the way. But that's how nasty the devil is. Like he will even twist scripture or twist experiences at church or in your small group or while you're volunteering or while, the, while you're doing the exact right thing. Like the devil is so nasty. Like nothing is beyond his desire to twist and pervert. In fact, this is, again, a great way to mock the devil. The devil can actually not do anything original. The devil does his best work by perverting something good, right? It's when something is, a spe like is tinged with righteousness or generosity that that's when it becomes nasty. Why is hoarding all your money and all your stuff a bad thing to do? I mean, you have to have stuff, which is a gift from God. You have to have money, which is a gift from God, and you have to say no to generosity and yes to hoarding, Right? But it's not the devil's stuff to begin with. Like, that's all the devil's work. He can only be derivative and a parasite. The devil stinks. Evil stinks. It can't do any, anything original. It can't write an original song. It can only take good music and turn it into bad songs. Jesus quotes more scripture back at the devil. 
And Jesus says this, again quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil is so unoriginal that temptation 1 and temptation 3 are the old if-then trap. If you are the son of God, then do this. I have to think Jesus is like rolling his eyes at the top of the temple. Like, didn't we already do this? You're so lame. And Jesus comes back with scripture of his own. The common denominator in each of these temptations is that the devil is trying to pick at Jesus' identity as the only begotten son of God. And in my own life, it is my testimony that the thing the devil most often likes to pick at is my identity as a child of God. Because if the devil can get me to doubt that, or that God is my parent, or that God is my father, or that God loves me, then the whole universe of dumb things is open to me because I don't belong to God anymore. So why should I not? One of our other lectionary readings for today on the front of your worship folder is this, Romans 10, 9, and 10. Um, I had the good fortune of having an older guy when I was in the eighth grade tell me that Romans 10, 9, and 10 was like spiritual TNT. Get it? Romans 10, T, 9, N, and 10, T. If there's one passage that a person should memorize to resist the temptation to think you're not a child of God, it is this one. Check this out. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Like, I don't know how to put it any more succinctly than that. Like, that is the greatest news anybody in the world ever heard. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. This one is worth remembering for somebody here this morning to drive the tempter away. You're in a dark hour. You think your life is meaningless. God is so far away, he probably doesn't exist. But if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and even have an ember of belief in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then life and hope is coming back for you too, my friend. This passage ends with a sobering statement. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left Jesus until an opportune time. When was that? When would that be, do you think? I mean, Jesus was in his weakened, having eaten for 40 days and 40 nights state. But imagine the kind of offers that maybe the devil made to Jesus when he was falsely accused. Hey, Jesus, how about you just like burn these people up because they're full of lies? Do you think Jesus might have been tempted when he stood silent before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders, and saw the hatred and accusation in their eyes? Do you think Jesus might have been tempted as he stood before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of that part of the world, to demonstrate who really had the power? Do you think Jesus might have been tempted as they were putting nails through his hands and feet when they yelled at him, hey, if you're really the son of God, why don't you come down from the cross? Do you think that might have tempted Jesus at that point? 
This moment is not the end of Jesus' temptation. It is only the beginning. And so it is in your life, my friends. If you are doing anything that is worth doing right now, if you are being faithful to a spouse, if you are being a good friend, if you are being generous, if you are helping somewhere, if you made a commitment to a school or a church or a relationship, like anything that's worth doing and walking the long road on, you will be tempted to give it up because something hard or nasty will happen. And not only will that be the case, but the devil will tempt you to twist it in such a way that it seems even worse and nastier than it actually is. And none of that means that you're a bad person or foolish, it actually means that your feet are on the right path and the devil doesn't want you walking in that direction. You will be tempted some more. It means if you're doing something significant and worth doing, that you've actually caught the attention of the powers that be and they don't want it to continue. In a pervert, in an upside down way, every time you're tempted, like be encouraged. Every time you're tempted to get off the long-term path of faithfulness and truth, the long-term path of walking with Jesus, be encouraged that you're being tempted because it means that you're actually making progress. A life of love avoids temptation. It pushes through temptation, and it expects more temptation. That's what happened to Jesus, and that is what's happening to us. As we come to the communion table, I want to point out what is an awesome miracle. The first temptation was, hey, Jesus, you're so hungry. Why don't you turn some of these rocks into bread, and then you can eat it, and you'll feel better about life. Jesus said, no, people don't live by bread alone. And then here's what Jesus did instead. He turned himself into bread. Not rocks into bread, because that's not what gives life. Just some extra carbohydrates. Jesus turned himself into bread. So that, not just for a week, not just for a year, but now for thousands of years, the worldwide body of Christ has been eating and drinking and somehow miraculously be staying alive across oceans, through temptations, through wars, through misguided crusades, through slavery, through the worst of things, somehow the body of Christ has miraculously been kept alive by the miraculous bread at the table to which we now come.